Welcome to Just Listen, a celebration of literature from Nashville Public Library. For more stories and poetry, visit our website at library.nashville.org. Please feel free to leave a comment or to make requests or recommendations. And now, for today's selection. If you've never read or heard of the Japanese ghost stories of Lafcadio Hearn, you are in for a real ghost story lover's treat. Best remembered for his collection and translation of these traditional Japanese ghost stories, he has presented stories that are so dearly loved by the Japanese that they have come to be regarded in Japan as classics in their own right. Today's stories come from a new book edited by Paul Murray, who is one of the biographers of both Lafcadio Hearn and Bram Stoker of Dracula fame. He is a former Irish diplomat whose posting to Japan in the late 1970s ignited his interest in Lafcadio Hearn. Our first story, Jikininki, is about a type of man-eating goblin. Be forewarned, Japanese ghosts are not the flimsy apparitions that only rustle curtains and go bump in the night. Japanese ghosts will tear one to pieces or pull one's head off. Our second story, Mujina, has a surprising and frightful end, and our final story, the story of Miminashi Hoichi, is a tale about a blind poet and biwa player who performs for ghosts in the moonlight. A final recording about butterflies is an interesting treatise in the voice of Lafcadio Hearn himself, in which the cultural spirituality of butterflies is discussed. There are a number of books in our collection by Lafcadio Hearn, including Japanese ghost stories, Ghostly Japan, which deals with poetry, silkworms, and Buddhist proverbs, and Kaidan, which is translated Strange Tales. We also have the DVD Kaidan, a splendid Criterion Collection representation of the book, directed by Masaki Kobayashi. I hope you enjoy today's readings and a quick dip into the pool of wonderful things Japanese. Stories by Lafcadio Hearn. We begin. Jikininki Once, when Musou Kukoshi, a priest of the Zen sect, was journeying alone through the province of Mino, he lost his way in a mountain district where there was nobody to direct him. For a long time he wandered about helplessly, and he was beginning to despair of finding shelter for the night when he perceived on the top of a hill lighted by the last rays of the sun one of those little hermitages called Anjitsu which are built for solitary priests. It seemed to be in a ruinous condition, but he hastened to it eagerly and found that it was inhabited by an aged priest from whom he begged the favor of a night's lodging. This the old man harshly refused, but he directed Musso to a certain hamlet in the valley adjoining where lodging and food could be obtained. Musso found his way to the hamlet, which consisted of less than a dozen farm cottages, and he was kindly received at the dwelling of the headman. Forty or fifty persons were assembled in the principal apartment at the moment of Musso's arrival, but he was shown into a small separate room where he was promptly supplied with food and bedding. Being very tired, he lay down to rest at an early hour, but a little before midnight he was roused from sleep by a sound of loud weeping in the next apartment. Presently the sliding screens were gently pushed apart, and a young man, carrying a lighted lantern, entered the room, respectfully saluted him, and said, 
Reverend Sir, it is my painful duty to tell you that I am now the responsible head of this house. Yesterday I was only the eldest son, but when you came here, tired as you were, we did not wish that you should feel embarrassed in any way. Therefore we did not tell you that Father had died only a few hours before. The people whom you saw in the next room are the inhabitants of this village. They all assembled here to pay their last respects to the dead, and now they are going to another village about three miles off, for, by our custom, no one of us may remain in this village during the night after a death has taken place. We make the proper offerings and prayers, then we go away, leaving the corpse alone. Strange things always happen in the house where a corpse has thus been left, so we think that it will be better for you to come away with us. We can find you good lodging in the other village. But perhaps, as you are a priest, you have no fear of demons or evil spirits, and if you are not afraid of being left alone with the body, you will be very welcome to the use of this poor house. However, I must tell you that nobody, except a priest, would dare to remain here tonight. Mousseau made answer, For your kind intention and your generous hospitality, I am deeply grateful. But I am sorry that you did not tell me of your father's death when I came, for though I was a little tired, I certainly was not so tired that I should have found any difficulty in doing my duty as a priest. Had you told me, I could have performed the service before your departure. As it is, I shall perform the service after you have gone away, and I shall stay by the body until morning. I do not know what you mean by your words about the danger of staying here alone, but I am not afraid of ghosts or demons, therefore please to feel no anxiety on my account. The young man appeared to be rejoiced by these assurances and expressed his gratitude in fitting words. Then the other members of the family and the folk assembled in the adjoining room, having been told of the priest's kind promises, came to thank him, after which the master of the house said, Now, reverend sir, much as we regret to leave you alone, we must bid you farewell. By the rule of our village, none of us can stay here after midnight. We beg, kind sir, that you will take every care of your honorable body while we are unable to attend upon you. And if you happen to hear or see anything strange during our absence, please tell us of the matter when we return in the morning. All then left the house, except the priest, who went to the room where the dead body was laying. The usual offerings had been set before the corpse, and a small Buddhist lamp, or tomyo, was burning. The priest recited the service and performed the funeral ceremonies, after which he entered into meditation. So meditating he remained through several silent hours, and there was no sound in the deserted village. But when the hush of the night was at its deepest, there noiselessly entered a shape, vague and vast, and in the same moment Mousseau found himself without power to move or speak. He saw that shape lift the corpse as with hands and devour it, more quickly than a cat devours a rat, beginning at the head and eating everything, the hair and the bones and even the shroud, and the monstrous thing, having thus consumed the body, turned to the offerings and ate them also. Then it went away, as mysteriously as it had come. When the villagers returned next morning, they found the priest awaiting them at the door of the headman's dwelling. All in turn saluted him, 
and when they had entered and looked about the room, no one expressed any surprise at the disappearance of the dead body and the offerings. But the master of the house said to Mousseau, Reverend sir, you have probably seen unpleasant things during the night. All of us were anxious about you, but now we are very happy to find you alive and unharmed. Gladly we would have stayed with you if it had been possible, but the law of our village, as I told you last evening, obliges us to quit our houses after a death has taken place, and to leave the corpse alone. Whenever this law has been broken heretofore, some great misfortune has followed. Whenever it is obeyed, we find that the corpse and the offerings disappear during our absence. Perhaps you have seen the cause. Then Mousseau told of the dim and awful shape that had entered the death chamber to devour the body and the offerings. No person seemed to be surprised by his narration, and the master of the house observed, What you have told us, reverend sir, agrees with what has been said about this matter from ancient time. Mousseau then inquired, Does not the priest on the hill sometimes perform the funeral service for your dead? What priest? the young man asked. The priest who yesterday evening directed me to this village, answered Mousseau. I called at his anjitsu on the hill yonder. He refused me lodging, but told me the way here. The listeners looked at each other as in astonishment, and after a moment of silence the master of the house said, Reverend sir, there is no priest and there is no anjitsu on the hill. For the time of many generations there has not been any resident priest in this neighborhood. Mousseau said nothing more on the subject, for it was evident that his kind hosts supposed him to have been deluded by some goblin. But after having bidden them farewell and obtained all necessary information as to his road, he determined to look again for the hermitage on the hill, and so to ascertain whether he had really been deceived. He found the Anjitsu without any difficulty, and this time its aged occupant invited him to enter. When he had done so, the hermit humbly bowed down before him, exclaiming, Ah, I am ashamed, I am very much ashamed, I am exceedingly ashamed. You need not be ashamed for having refused me shelter, said Mousseau. You directed me to the village yonder where I was very kindly treated, and I thank you for that favor. I can give no man shelter, the recluse made answer, and it is not for the refusal that I am ashamed. I am ashamed only that you should have seen me in my real shape, for it was I who devoured the corpse and the offerings last night before your eyes. Know, reverend sir, that I am a jikininki, an eater of human flesh. Have pity upon me, and suffer me to confess the secret fault by which I am reduced to this condition. A long, long time ago, I was a priest in this desolate region. There was no other priest for many leagues around. So, in that time, the bodies of the mountain folk who died used to be brought here, sometimes from great distances, in order that I might repeat over them the holy service. But I repeated the service and performed the rites only as a matter of business. I thought only of the food and the clothes that my sacred profession enabled me to gain. And because of this selfish impiety, I was reborn, immediately after my death, into the state of a jikininki. Since then I have been obliged to feed upon the corpses of the people who die in this district. Every one of them I must devour in the way that you saw last night. Now, reverend sir, 
Let me beseech you to perform a sagaki service for me. Help me by your prayers, I entreat you, so that I may be soon able to escape from this horrible state of existence. No sooner had the hermit uttered this petition than he disappeared, and the hermitage also disappeared at the same instant, and Muso Kukoshi found himself kneeling alone in the high grass beside an ancient and moss-grown tomb of the form called Gorinishi, which seemed to be the tomb of a priest. Mujina On the Akasaka Road in Tokyo, there is a slope called Ki-no-Kunizaka, which means the slope of the province of Kii. I do not know why it is called the slope of the province of Kii. On one side of this slope, you see an ancient moat, deep and very wide, with high green banks rising up to some place of gardens. And on the other side of the road extend the long and lofty walls of an imperial palace. Before the era of street lamps and jinrikishas, this neighborhood was very lonesome after dark, and belated pedestrians would go miles out of their way rather than mount the Ki no Kunizaka alone after sunset. All because of a mujina that used to walk there. The last man who saw the mujina was an old merchant of the Kayobashi quarter, who died about thirty years ago. This is the story as he told it. One night, at a late hour, he was hurrying up the Ki no Kunizaka when he perceived a woman crouching by the moat, all alone and weeping bitterly. Fearing that she intended to drown herself, he stopped to offer her any assistance or consolation in his power. She appeared to be a slight and graceful person, handsomely dressed, and her hair was arranged like that of a young girl of good family. Ojochu! he exclaimed, approaching her. Ojochu, do not cry like that. Tell me what the trouble is, and if there be any way to help you, I shall be glad to help you. He really meant what he said, for he was a very kind man. But she continued to weep, hiding her face from him with one of her long sleeves. Ojochu, he said again as gently as he could, please, please listen to me. This is no place for a young lady at night. Do not cry, I implore you. Only tell me how I may be of some help to you. Slowly she rose up, but turned her back to him and continued to moan and sob behind her sleeve. He laid his hand lightly upon her shoulder and pleaded, Ojochu, 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 listen to me just for one little moment. Ojochu, Ojochu. Then that Ojochu turned around and dropped her sleeve and stroked her face with her hand, and the man saw that she had no eyes or nose or mouth, and he screamed and ran away. Up Ki no Kunisaka he ran and ran, and all was black and empty before him. On and on he ran, never daring to look back, and at last he saw a lantern so far away that it looked like the gleam of a firefly and he made for it. It proved to be only the lantern of an itinerant soba seller who had set down his stand by the roadside. But any light and any human companionship was good after that experience, and he flung himself down at the feet of the soba seller, crying, Ah! 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 
Kore, kore, roughly exclaimed the soba man. Here, what is the matter with you? Anybody hurt you? No, nobody hurt me, panted the other, only, ah, ah, only scared you, queried the peddler unsympathetically. Robbers? Not robbers, not robbers, gasped the terrified man. I saw, I saw a woman by the moat, and she showed me, ah, I cannot tell you what she showed me. Hey, was it anything like this that she showed you? cried the soba man, stroking his own face, which therewith became like unto an egg. And, simultaneously, the light went out. The Story of Mimi Nashi Hoichi More than seven hundred years ago, at Danonura, in the Straits of Shimonoseki, was fought the last battle of the long contest between the Eike, or Taira clan, and the Genji, or Minamoto clan. There the Eike perished utterly, with their women and children, and their infant emperor likewise, now remembered as Antoku Tenno. And that sea and shore have been haunted for seven hundred years. Elsewhere I told you about the strange crabs found there, called Aike crabs, which have human faces on their backs and are said to be the spirits of the Aike warriors. But there are many strange things to be seen and heard along that coast. On dark nights thousands of ghostly fires hover about the beach or flit above the waves, pale lights which the fishermen called Onibi, or demon fires, and whenever the winds are up, a sound of great shouting comes from that sea, like a clamor of battle. In former years, the Eke were much more restless than they now are. They would rise about ships passing in the night and try to sink them, and at all times they would watch for swimmers to pull them down. It was in order to appease those dead that the Buddhist temple, Amidaji, was built at Akamagaseki. A cemetery also was made close by, near the beach, and within it were set up monuments inscribed with the names of the drowned emperor and of his great vassals, and Buddhist services were regularly performed there on behalf of the spirits of them. After the temple had been built and the tombs erected, the A.K. gave less trouble than before, but they continued to do queer things at intervals, proving that they had not found perfect peace. Some centuries ago, there lived at Akamagaseki a blind man named Hoichi, who was famed for his skill in recitation and in playing upon the biwa, a kind of stringed instrument played with a plectrum, usually made of horn. From childhood he had been trained to recite and to play, and while yet a lad he had surpassed his teachers. As a professional biwa hoshi, he became famous chiefly by his recitations of the history of the Eke and the Genji, and it is said that when he sang the song of the Battle of Dano-Ura, even the goblins could not refrain from tears. At the outset of his career, Hoichi was very poor, but he found a good friend to help him. The priest of the Amidaji was fond of poetry and music, and he invited Hoichi to the temple to play and recite. Afterwards, being much impressed by the wonderful skill of the lad, the priest proposed that Hoichi should make the temple his home, and this offer was gratefully accepted. 
Hoichi was given a room in the temple building, and in return for food and lodging, he was required only to gratify the priest with a musical performance on certain evenings, when otherwise disengaged. One summer night, the priest was called away to perform a Buddhist service at the house of a dead parishioner, and he went there with his acolyte, leaving Hoichi alone in the temple. It was a hot night, and the blind man sought to cool himself on the veranda before his sleeping room. The veranda overlooked a small garden in the rear of the Amidaji. There Hoichi waited for the priest's return and tried to relieve his solitude by practicing upon his biwa. Midnight passed and the priest did not appear, but the atmosphere was still too warm for comfort within doors, and Hoichi remained outside. At last he heard steps approaching from the back gate. Somebody crossed the garden, advanced to the veranda, and halted directly in front of him. But it was not the priest. A deep voice called the blind man's name, abruptly and unceremoniously, in the manner of a samurai summoning an inferior. Hoichi! Hoichi was too much startled for the moment to respond, and the voice called again in a tone of harsh command. Hoichi! Hi! answered the blind man, frightened by the menace in the voice. I am blind. I cannot know who calls. There is nothing to fear, the stranger exclaimed, speaking more gently. I am stopping near this temple, and have been sent to you with a message. My present lord, a person of exceedingly high rank, is now staying in Akamagaseki with many noble attendants. He wished to view the scene of the Battle of Danoura, and today he visited that place. Having heard of your skill in reciting the story of the battle, he now desires to hear your performance. So you will take your biwa and come with me at once to the house where the august assembly is waiting. In those times, the order of a samurai was not to be lightly disobeyed. Hoichi donned his sandals, took his biwa, and went away with the stranger, who guided him deftly, but obliged him to walk very fast. The hand that guided was iron, and the clank of the warrior's stride proved him fully armed, probably some palace guard on duty. Hoichi's first alarm was over. He began to imagine himself in good luck, for remembering the retainer's assurance about a person of exceedingly high rank, he thought that the lord who wished to hear the recitation could not be less than a damio of the first class. Presently the samurai halted and Hoichi became aware that they had arrived at a large gateway. And he wondered, for he could not remember any large gate in that part of the town, except the main gate of the Amidachi. Kaimon, the samurai called, and there was a sound of unbarring, and the twain passed on. They traversed a space of garden and halted again before some entrance, and the retainer cried in a large voice, Within there, I have brought Hoichi! Then came sounds of feet scurrying and screens sliding and rain doors opening and voices of women in converse. By the language of the women, Hoichi knew them to be domestics in some noble household, but he could not imagine to what place he had been conducted. Little time was allowed him for conjecture. After he had been helped to mount several stone steps, upon the last of which he was told to leave his sandals, 
A woman's hand guided him along interminable reaches of polished planking and round-pillared angles too many to remember and over widths amazing of matted floor into the middle of some vast apartment. There he thought that many great people were assembled. The sound of the rustling of silk was like the sound of leaves in a forest. He heard also a great humming of voices, talking in undertones, and the speech was the speech of courts. Hoichi was told to put himself at ease, and he found a kneeling cushion ready for him. After having taken his place upon it and tuned his instrument, the voice of a woman, whom he divined to be the rojo, or matron in charge of the female service, addressed him, saying, It is now required that the history of the Eke be recited, to the accompaniment of the Biwa. Now the entire recital would have required a time of many nights, Therefore Hoichi ventured a question. As the whole of the story is not soon told, what portion is it augustly desired that I now recite? The woman's voice made answer. Recite the story of the battle of Danoura, for the pity of it is most deep. Then Hoichi lifted up his voice and chanted the chant of the fight on the bitter sea, wonderfully making his biwa to sound like the straining of oars and the rushing of ships, the whir and the hissing of arrows, the shouting and trampling of men, the crashing of steel upon helmets, the plunging of slain in the flood. And to left and right of him in the pauses of his playing he could hear voices murmuring praise. How marvelous an artist! Never in our own province was playing heard like this. Not in all the empire is there another singer like Hoichi. Then fresh courage came to him, and he played and sang yet better than before, and a hush of wonder deepened about him. But when at last he came to tell the fate of the fair and helpless, the piteous perishing of the women and children, and the death-leap of Ni no Ama with the imperial infant in her arms, then all the listeners uttered together one long, long, shuddering cry of anguish, and thereafter they wept and wailed so loudly and so wildly that the blind man was frightened by the violence and grief that he had made. For much time the sobbing and the wailing continued, but gradually the sounds of lamentation died away, and again, in the great stillness that followed, Hoichi heard the voice of the woman whom he supposed to be the rojo. She said, Although we have been assured that you were a very skillful player upon the biwa, and without an equal in recitative, we did not know that anyone could be so skillful as you have proved yourself tonight. Our Lord has been pleased to say that He intends to bestow upon you a fitting reward, but He desires that you shall perform before Him once every night for the next six nights, after which time He will probably make His august return journey. Tomorrow night, therefore... You are to come here at the same hour. The retainer who tonight conducted you will be sent for you. There is another matter about which I have been ordered to inform you. It is required that you shall speak to no one of your visits here during the time of our Lord's august sojourn at Akamagaseki. As he is traveling incognito, he commands that no mention of these things be made. You are now free to go back to your temple." After Hoichi had duly expressed his thanks, a woman's hand conducted him to the entrance of the house, where the same retainer, who had before guided him, was waiting to take him home. The retainer led him to the veranda at the rear of the temple, 
and there bade him farewell. It was almost dawn when Hoichi returned, but his absence from the temple had not been observed, as the priest, coming back at a very late hour, had supposed him asleep. During the day, Hoichi was able to take some rest, and he said nothing about his strange adventure. In the middle of the following night, the samurai again came for him and led him to the august assembly, where he gave another recitation with the same success that had attended his previous performance. But during this second visit, his absence from the temple was accidentally discovered, and after his return in the morning, he was summoned to the presence of the priest, who said to him, in a tone of kindly reproach, we have been very anxious about you, friend Hoichi. To go out blind and alone at so late an hour is dangerous. Why did you go without telling us? I could have ordered a servant to accompany you. And where have you been? Hoichi answered evasively, Pardon me, kind friend. I had to attend to some private business, and I could not arrange the matter at any other hour. The priest was surprised rather than pained, by Hoichi's reticence. He felt it to be unnatural and suspected something wrong. He feared that the blind lad had been bewitched or deluded by some evil spirits. He did not ask any more questions, but he privately instructed the men-servants of the temple to keep watch upon Hoichi's movements and to follow him in case that he should again leave the temple after dark. On the very next night, Hoichi was seen to leave the temple and the servants immediately lighted their lanterns and followed after him. But it was a rainy night and very dark, and before the temple folks could get to the roadway, Hoichi had disappeared. Evidently he had walked very fast, a strange thing considering his blindness, for the road was in a bad condition. The men hurried through the streets, making inquiries at every house which Hoichi was accustomed to visit, but nobody could give them any news of him. At last, as they were returning to the temple by way of the shore, they were startled by the sound of a biwa, furiously played, in the cemetery of the Amidaji. Except for some ghostly fires, such as usually flitted there on dark nights, all was blackness in that direction. But the men at once hastened to the cemetery, and there, by the help of their lanterns, they discovered Hoichi, sitting alone in the rain before the memorial tomb of Antoku Teno, making his biwa resound, and loudly chanting the chant of the battle of Danoura. And beside him and about him and everywhere above the tombs, the fires of the dead were burning like candles. Never before had so great a host of Onibi appeared in the sight of mortal man. Hoichi-san! Hoichi-san! the servants cried. You are bewitched! Hoichi-san! But the blind man did not seem to hear. Strenuously he made his biwa to rattle and ring and clang. More and more wildly he chanted the chant of the battle of Danoura. They caught hold of him, they shouted into his ear, Hoichi-san! Hoichi-san! Come home with us at once! Reprovingly he spoke to them. To interrupt me in such a manner, before this august assembly will not be tolerated. Whereat, in spite of the weirdness of the thing, the servants could not help laughing. Sure that he had been bewitched, they now seized him and pulled him up on his feet, and by main force hurried him back to the temple, 
where he was immediately relieved of his wet clothes by order of the priest. Then the priest insisted upon a full explanation of his friend's astonishing behavior. Hoichi long hesitated to speak, but at last, finding that his conduct had really alarmed and angered the good priest, he decided to abandon his reserve, and he related everything that had happened from the time of his first visit of the samurai. The priest said, Hoichi, my poor friend, you are now in great danger. How unfortunate that you did not tell me all this before. Your wonderful skill in music has indeed brought you into strange trouble. By this time you must be aware that you have not been visiting any house whatever, but have been passing your nights in the cemetery among the tombs of the A.K. And it was before the memorial tomb of Antoku Teno that our people tonight found you, sitting in the rain. All that you have been imagining was illusion, except the calling of the dead. By once obeying them, you have put yourself in their power. If you obey them again, after what has already occurred, they will tear you in pieces. But they would have destroyed you sooner or later, in any event. Now I shall not be able to remain with you tonight. I am called away to perform another service. But before I go, it will be necessary to protect your body by writing holy texts upon it. Before sundown, the priest and his acolyte stripped Hoichi. Then, with their writing brushes, they traced upon his breast and back, head and face and neck, limbs and hands and feet, even upon the soles of his feet and upon all parts of his body, the text of the Holy Sutra called Hanya Shinkyo. When this had been done, the priest instructed Hoichi, saying, Tonight, as I go away, you must seat yourself on the veranda and wait. You will be called. But whatever may happen, do not answer and do not move. Say nothing and sit still, as if meditating. If you stir or make any noise, you will be torn asunder. Do not get frightened and do not think of calling for help, because no help could save you. If you do exactly as I tell you, the danger will pass and you will have nothing more to fear. After dark, the priest and the acolyte went away, and Hoichi seated himself on the veranda, according to the instructions given him. He laid his biwa on the planking beside him, and assuming the attitude of meditation, remained quite still, taking care not to cough or to breathe audibly. For hours he stayed thus. Then, coming from the roadway, he heard the steps coming. They passed the gate, crossed the garden, approached the veranda, stopped, directly in front of him. Hoichi, the deep voice called, but the blind man held his breath and sat motionless. Hoichi, grimly called the voice a second time, then a third time, savagely, Hoichi. Hoichi remained as still as a stone, and the voice grumbled. No answer. That won't do. Must see where the fellow is. There was a noise of heavy feet mounting upon the veranda. The feet approached deliberately, halted beside him. Then for long minutes, during which Hoichi felt his whole body shake to the beating of his heart, there was dead silence. At last the gruff voice muttered close to him. Here is the Biwa, but of the Biwa player I see only two ears. So that explains why he did not answer. He had no mouth to answer with. 
there is nothing left of him but his ears. Now to my lord those ears I will take, in proof that the august commands have been obeyed as far as was possible. At that instant Hoichi felt his ears gripped by fingers of iron and torn off. Great as the pain was, he gave no cry. The heavy footfalls receded along the veranda, descended into the garden, passed onto the roadway, ceased. From either side of his head, the blind man felt a thick, warm trickling, but he dared not lift his hands. Before sunrise, the priest came back. He hastened at once to the veranda in the rear, stepped and slipped upon something clammy, and uttered a cry of horror, for he saw by the light of his lantern that the clamminess was blood. But he perceived Hoichi sitting there, in the attitude of meditation, with the blood still oozing from his wounds. "'My poor Hoichi!' cried the startled priest. "'What is this? You have been hurt!' At the sound of his friend's voice, the blind man felt safe. He burst out sobbing and tearfully told his adventure of the night. "'Poor, poor Hoichi!' the priest exclaimed. "'All my fault, my very grievous fault!' Everywhere upon your body the holy texts had been written, except upon your ears. I trusted my acolyte to do that part of the work, and it was very, very wrong of me not to have made sure that he had done it. Well... The matter cannot be helped. We can only try to heal your hurts as soon as possible. Cheer up, friend. The danger is now well over. You will never again be troubled by those visitors. With the aid of a good doctor, Hoichi soon recovered from his injuries. The story of his strange adventure spread far and wide and soon made him famous. Many noble persons went to Akamagaseki to hear him recite, and large presents of money were given to him so that he became a wealthy man, but from the time of his adventure he was known only by the appellation of Miminashi Hoichi, Hoichi the Earless. Butterflies Would that I could hope for the luck of that Chinese scholar known to Japanese literature as Rosan for he was beloved by two spirit maidens, celestial sisters, who every ten days came to visit him and to tell him stories about butterflies. Now there are marvelous Chinese stories about butterflies, ghostly stories, and I want to know them. But never shall I be able to read Chinese, nor even Japanese, and the little Japanese poetry that I manage, with exceeding difficulty, to translate— contains so many allusions to Chinese stories of butterflies that I am tormented with the torment of Tantalus, and, of course, no spirit maidens will ever deign to visit so skeptical a person as myself. I want to know, for example, the whole story of the Chinese maiden whom the butterflies took to be a flower and followed in multitude, so fragrant and so fair was she. Also, I should like to know something more concerning the butterflies of the Emperor Jen So, or Ming Huang, who made them choose his loves for him. He used to hold wine parties in his amazing garden, and ladies of exceeding beauty were in attendance, and caged butterflies, set free among them, would fly to the fairest, and then upon that fairest the imperial favor was bestowed. But after Jen So Kote had seen Yokihi, whom the Chinese call Yang Kuei Fei, he would not suffer the butterflies to choose for him, 
which was unlucky, as Yokihi got him into serious trouble. Again, I should like to know more about the experience of that Chinese scholar, celebrated in Japan under the name of Soshu, who dreamed that he was a butterfly and had all the sensations of a butterfly in that dream, for his spirit had really been wandering about in the shape of a butterfly. And when he awoke, the memories and the feelings of butterfly existence remained so vivid in his mind that he could not act like a human being. Finally, I should like to know the text of a certain Chinese official, recognition of sundry butterflies as the spirits of an emperor. Finally, I should like to know the text of a certain Chinese official recognition of sundry butterflies as the spirits of an emperor and of his attendants. Most of the Japanese literature about butterflies, excepting some poetry, appears to be of Chinese origin. And even that old national aesthetic feeling on the subject, which found such delightful expression in Japanese art and song and custom, may have been first developed under Chinese teaching. Chinese precedent doubtless explains why Japanese poets and painters chose so often for their gemio or professional appellations such name as chomu, which means butterfly dream, icho, solitary butterfly, etc. And even to this day, such gemyo as chohana, which means butterfly blossom, chokichi, which means butterfly luck, or chikunosuke, butterfly help, are affected by dancing girls. Besides artistic names having reference to butterflies, there are still in use real personal names, yobina, of this kind, such as kocho or cho, meaning butterfly. They are born by women only, as a rule, though there are some strange exceptions. And here I may mention that in the province of Mutsu, there still exists the curious old custom of calling the youngest daughter in a family Tekona, which quaint word, obsolete elsewhere, signifies in Mutsu dialect a butterfly. In classic time, this word signified also a beautiful woman. It is possible also that some weird Japanese beliefs about butterflies are of Chinese derivation, but these beliefs might be older than China herself. The most interesting one, I think, is that the soul of a living person may wander about in the form of a butterfly. Some pretty fancies have been evolved out of this belief, such as the notion that if a butterfly enters your guest room and perches behind the bamboo screen, the person whom you most love is coming to see you. That a butterfly may be the spirit of somebody is not a reason for being afraid of it. Nevertheless, there are times when even butterflies can inspire fear by appearing in prodigious numbers, and Japanese history records such an event. When Taira no Masakado was secretly preparing for his famous revolt, there appeared in Kyoto so vast a swarm of butterflies that the people were frightened, thinking the apparition to be a portent of coming evil. Perhaps those butterflies were supposed to be the spirits of the thousands doomed to perish in battle and agitated on the eve of war by some mysterious premonition of death. However, in Japanese belief, a butterfly may be the soul of a dead person as well as of a living person. Indeed, it is a custom of souls to take butterfly shape in order to announce the fact of their final departure from the body. And for this reason, any butterfly which enters a house ought to be kindly treated. 
To this belief and to queer fancies connected with it, there are many allusions in popular drama. For example, there is a well-known play called The Flying Hairpin of Cocho. Cocho is a beautiful person who kills herself because of false accusations and cruel treatment. Her would-be avenger long seeks in vain for the author of the wrong. But at last the dead woman's hairpin turns into a butterfly and serves as a guide to vengeance by hovering above the place where the villain is living. Of course, those big paper butterflies, which figure at weddings, must not be thought of as having any ghostly signification. As emblems, they only express the joy of loving union and the hope that the newly married couple may pass through life together as a pair of butterflies flit lightly through some pleasant garden, now hovering upward, now downward, but never widely separating. Most of the Japanese stories about butterflies appear, as I have said, to be of Chinese origin. But I have one which is probably indigenous, and it seems to me worth telling for the benefit of persons who believe that there is no romantic love in the Far East. Behind the cemetery of the Temple of Suzanji, in the suburbs of the capital, there long stood a solitary cottage occupied by an old man named Takahama. He was liked in the neighborhood by reason of his amiable ways, but almost everybody supposed him to be a little mad. Unless a man take the Buddhist vows, he is expected to marry and to bring up a family. But Takahama did not belong to the religious life, and he could not be persuaded to marry. Neither had he ever been known to enter into a love relation with any woman. For more than fifty years he had lived entirely alone. One summer he fell sick and knew that he had not long to live. He then sent for his sister-in-law, a widow, and for her only son, a lad of about twenty years old, to whom he was much attached. Both promptly came and did whatever they could to soothe the old man's last hours. One sultry afternoon, while the widow and her son were watching at his bedside, Takahama fell asleep. At the same moment a very large white butterfly entered the room and perched upon the sick man's pillow. The nephew drove it away with a fan, but it returned immediately to the pillow and was again driven away, only to come back a third time. Then the nephew chased it into the garden and across the garden, through an open gate, into the cemetery of the neighboring temple. But it continued to flutter before him as if unwilling to be driven further and acted so queerly that he began to wonder whether it was really a butterfly or a ma, an evil spirit. He again chased it and followed it far into the cemetery until he saw it fly against a tomb, a woman's tomb. There it unaccountably disappeared, and he searched for it in vain. He then examined the monument. It bore the personal name Akiko, together with an unfamiliar family name and an inscription stating that Akiko had died at the age of eighteen. Apparently the tomb had been erected about fifty years previously. Moss had begun to gather upon it, but it had been well cared for. There were fresh flowers before it, and the water tank had recently been filled. On returning to the sick room, the young man was shocked by the announcement that his uncle had ceased to breathe. Death had come to the sleeper painlessly, and the dead face smiled. 
The young man told his mother of what he had seen in the cemetery. Ah! exclaimed the widow. Then it must have been Akiko. But who was Akiko, mother? the nephew asked. The widow answered, When your good uncle was young, he was betrothed to a charming girl called Akiko, the daughter of a neighbor. Akiko died of consumption only a little before the day appointed for the wedding, and her promised husband sorrowed greatly. After Akiko had been buried, he made a vow never to marry, and he built this little house beside the cemetery so that he might be always near her grave. All this happened more than fifty years ago, and every day of those fifty years, winter and summer alike, your uncle went to the cemetery and prayed at the grave and swept the tomb and set offerings before it. But he did not like to have any mention made of the matter, and he never spoke of it. So at last, Akiko came for him. The white butterfly was her soul. I had almost forgotten to mention an ancient Japanese dance called the butterfly dance, or kochumai, which used to be performed in the imperial palace by dancers costumed as butterflies. Whether it is danced occasionally nowadays, I do not know. It is said to be very difficult to learn. Six dancers are required for the proper performance of it, and they must move in particular figures, obeying traditional rules for every step, pose, or gesture, and circling about each other very slowly to the sound of hand drums and great drums, small flutes and great flutes, and pandian pipes of a form unknown to Western Pan. Thanks for joining us. Tune in to another session of Just Listen by visiting your Nashville Public Library website at library.nashville.org.